Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Hey, so... Hey, so... (laughs) That's got little kids. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, and one woke up in the middle of the night last night twice, and that five o'clock alarm came around real hard, so... That's right. So disclaimer, listeners. Yeah. Cut us, cut us some slack. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> here we are. <laughs> so uh, the word woke seems to be incredibly common today. And um, some idolize it, some completely dismiss it. And I thought you had a really uh, kind of profound take on it in, in a conversation where you simply said, oh, sounds, sounds like awakening. Uh, modern, uh, modern sense of the word, and so I'd I'd like you to, to talk about that. I think it's a very unique perspective. So uh, the word woke. How do we get to awakening, and what's the significance of that, if there is any? Mm-hmm. By the way, are you woke now? <laughs> uh, it is five forty-five. So I am technically awake, and I did. <laughs> I, I I was woke. <laughs> in that it's sense an odd, it's an odd phrase isn't it uh it, it I mean, is, we're not yes. we're not lampooning it here uh listeners uh but when i first started here i said that just doesn't roll off the tongue uh you yep. wake up in the morning uh you could be awakened but I've, I've, i don't think i've ever said uh well, you know academy say you awake and say i'm woke <laughs> right and and i actually when i first started that I wasn't sure if it was making fun or right. or something else because it, 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 it is an odd term. It doesn't roll off the tongue well at all. Yeah. So it's heightened sensibilities. And of course, there's always something good and redemptive in any of these things. And uh, But it does run uh, to, just as anything does, it, it runs to uh, challenges. First is to make too much of it, and that's what the Bible calls an idol. And then to make too little of it, and that's what the Bible calls is uh, ignorance. And God blesses neither. Um, so it's it, in the. It, it's also going to run the risk of what Luther famous, famously said. You know, where we're drunks, we're we're falling off the saddle on one side. So in our trying to make reparations and what have you, we just fall off on the other side. Uh, so. The, you know, the trick is staying upright in the saddle, and I actually think. Uh, some uh, woke, uh, some of the woke uh, movement, for all its good intentions, and it certainly is trying to make some reparations as to the events of some injustices, and certainly some lack of sensibility, um, I would say in any community. Uh, I know it particularly toward uh, uh, white male Europeans, for example, but, uh, and, you know, rightly so, I get it. But there, I think there are some... Um, challenges in that but more importantly i think if you're someone who follows christ to be helpful to at least understand it's got some origins in in efficacies of evangelicalism now that's a mouthful you try <laughs> saying that early in the morning yeah. um 
shortcomings how would that be yeah that's that's, that i can comprehend that's better yeah so here we go (laughs) so woke has do an imagination exercise for a moment imagine woke what does woke look like yeah i'm I'm immediately just someone jumping out of bed that's what the eyes open i can see now that's what comes to mind for me yes Fascinating that in the history of our country, we've had awakenings. Very similar. Hmm. Yeah. But with some differences. Let me see if I can draw a line, make a connection anyway between uh, today, woke, which, you know, well, here we'll put our cards on the table. Much or some, some aspects, perhaps a lot of aspects of woke. Uh, they're the residue of a post-Christian, uh, of what you see when Christianity was more uh, in, uh, impactful. And so we have this history of awakenings that were taken more seriously by people of faith and no faith and differing faiths. But they had uh, each one fizzled out quickly. You just get to a point where uh, you just can't do it anymore. And so what you have in a post-Christian world is we're still made in the image of God, sort of groping for something, but awakenings had a direct connection in the language of God and gospel. Woke has the language of... uh, uh, I just woke. Mm, yeah, it just, just happened. It just happened. It's not like Pope Bronson brought a lot of great books many years ago on calling. They really were good books. And, uh, you know, Poe, uh, po, there's no, that's, I guess that's, that's his pen name anyway. There's no indication of any reference to God. So the question became, well, if you're called, isn't there generally a caller? But he struck a nerve because uh, he was one of the leading edge of writers who were pricking our conscience that people were saying, I just feel like a slave wage. I mean, I'm working my butt off. To what end? Is there any great arching purpose other than stuff my barn with money and then retire to a state where there's no state income tax and chase a white ball driving a golf cart. Is that it? Was Peggy Lee saying, is that all there is? So Paul Bronson had a lot of good things to say, but it, it sort of, it just lost air. And it's going to happen in the same way here, I think. And here's why. So first of all, Pat, <clears throat> I have some friends, uh, neighbors, what have you, they say they're praying for a third great awakening in America. What's the problem with that? Yeah, there's already been three. There's already been three. How many people know that? How many Christians? Probably not many. So name the three. Just roughly. That, that I, I couldn't. Yeah, that's where. Now let's, let's cut some slack. Let's say... Uh, 
Christian would say, well, there was the first great awakening. First Great Awakening, early 1700s. And the famous name with that is George Whitfield. I believe he made 19 crossings from England to America, came to preach. Franklin listened to him, by the way. He drew up to 20,000 people with an unamplified voice, a booming voice. The uh, That awakening, um, after it... Uh, raced through the eastern seaboard, just began to lose air. One, um, yeah, one indication of that is that, uh, that uh, when, after the first four or five colleges were formed in the United States, all of them based along a model that came out of uh, the Middle Ages and the church, the, the liberal arts with theology at the center, Franklin was key in starting the University of Pennsylvania, the first school with no reference to faith. And the trustees, the first building they purchased to found the university was Whitfield's preaching hall, which had been out of service, hadn't been used in over 20 years. Ironic. Wow. Yeah. So you have this period of time and it loses steam. Then you have the second great awakening, late 1700s to uh, primarily early 1800s. One of the chief names in this is Finney, F-I-N-N-E-Y. Now this one is very different. Uh, this one is not less urban, it's more in the countryside. Uh, uh, Kentucky for example. Uh, second, Finney felt that a revival or an awakening could be manufactured. It was a work of man. That is, so he introduced the mercy seat, the Revelation 3.20, invite Christ into your heart, uh, had women sit in the first three, four rows because they were more emotional and they would draw men, yada, yada, yada. Now, these, because they had more of a sense of being manufactured, they had less credibility and so it's the, these revivalists or awakenings of the second who called themselves, get this, the second great awakening and labeled Whitfield's the first great awakening. Wow. <laughs> good. Uh, this is where you gain some instant credibility. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought about the original branding guys. Yeah. I've never thought about that. Um, we'll meet Finney in eternity. We'll see what he feels about our comment there. But anyway, uh, <laughs> So this one uh, tends to be, again, more um, populist, uh, anti-intellectual, um, so on and so forth. This one, again, loses air pretty rapidly. Then you have the Third Awakening. You're familiar with that one. See, most are. It's called the Businessman's Awakening, 1859 to 1861. Hmm. Prayer awakening primarily, mm, uh, sure. east and west coast. Okay. <clears throat> what happened to that one? I'm going to guess it fizzled out. Uh, that's, a, that's a nice way to put it. What happened in 1861, beginning in Fort Sumter? <laughs> I don't know. Called the Civil War. Oh, okay. That's a big problem. That's a big problem. <laughs> in one battle... 
the first battle, Shiloh, more Americans are killed than in all wars in America to that point combined. Mm. In Gettysburg, the turning point, more soldiers will be killed in three days that are killed in our entire time in Vietnam. This war is so horrific. The medical records show in the state of Mississippi, one out of every five male was wearing some kind of prosthetics after the war. Hmm. Now, shortly before his assassination, Lincoln gave his famous second inaugural, where he intoned these famous words, both sides read the same Bible. Mm -hmm. Both sides prayed to the same God. Yet the war came. So you have a wave of younger people who fought in that war, whose parents had come to faith and grandparents through the Second Great Awakening. Hmm. Need I say much more? Right. Wow. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. becomes the father of pragmatism. He becomes a U.S. Supreme Court judge who is opposed to originalism. That is, what did the founders intend? Or rather, it evolves. The Constitution is living and evolves, and we continually to interpret it for our cultural context. I could regale you with stories on this if you readers want a darn good book in my top 10. It's called The Metaphysical Club. Metaphysical, meta beyond physical. That was a mocking term of agnostics who believe there is nothing beyond the physical. But they thought institutions, they thought cultural capital, and they would go on to the heights of commerce, education, the United States Supreme Court, politics, publishing, finance. And even with the opening of the first graduate university in the United States, Johns Hopkins University, the cousin of, who would later become famous, uh, the uncle, rather, of John Huxley, whose cousin was Aldous Huxley. Huxley would give, Thomas Huxley would give the opening address at uh, Hopkins, and he would introduce himself in a new word that entered the American lexicon, agnostic. And that is, there are people who don't believe at all in a God, and then there are people who do. Both of them are not dealing with reality. Reality is the physical world. This, whatever it is, meta, is the realm of personal opinion and taste. In other words, you like pepperoni pizza. But for those in leaders, they are agnostic about religion. What's agnostic mean? 
You're in a state of uh, unknown. You, you don't right. claim to know one or the other. That's right. I don't know is what it means. Not, gnosis is knowledge in Greek. Put an A in front of it. Like put an A in front of theist, you get atheist. Of, yeah. And with a, it, knowledge is, put an A in front of it, is I don't know. I don't know. We have no knowledge, certain knowledge is what they're saying. So this is a long-winded way, perhaps, to get to our point. And here it is. Why did these awakenings keep losing air so rapidly? That's a great question. I don't know. Did you grow up riding bikes? I did. In fact, you used to have a motorcycle. That's right. I actually got a hole in the tire at one point. Okay. So the first thing you do when you get a hole in the tire is just quickly just keep reinflating it. <laughs> That's right. Just just slap the pump on the bike and you're good. You're good to go, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't get you very far. <laughs> That's right. Now, see, we're, we have to assume that we have some of the most intelligent listeners in the world. So they get what we're saying. <laughs> <laughs> here's the adage first fix the flat the yeah. first thing you do is fix the tire then you reinflate it mm. the problem with this whole notions of awakenings is we're trying to reinflate a tire with a hole in it. We're trying to reinflate a gospel that's got a major tear in it. A gospel of the with the enlightenment tore away from the ancient gospel of God marrying us to a gospel that instead fixes our sin problem. But let's just say, or we can imagine, because it actually happened, young men fighting in a war where I've actually walked where Pickett's Charge took place in Gettysburg while the great-great-great-grandson of the leader of the 4th Virginia read in his Confederate regalia, a reconstructed uniform on a hot July day, as we walked through that crunchy field toward a stone wall, what it was like to be in the Fourth Virginia. And these were all men on both sides that had been forgiven by Jesus. They were certain they were forgiven, calling on God, and as it's written in his diary, first the muskets from behind the stone wall open up straight into their faces. But then there's an Ohio regiment to the north, to their left, that they don't see that's in the woods, and they're now caught up in crossfire. Obviously, this man survived, retreats. They hightail out of Gettysburg as best they can, whoever is left, fleeing on their horses. 
They make it to the Potomac only to wake up in the morning to have a young captain for the Union Army by the name of George Custer takes them into, they're surrounded, so they surrender. And they are shipped off to an island on Lake Erie where they'll spend the remainder of the war when the diary closes. I wouldn't want another awakening. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if that's what it gets you or if that's the perception. Yeah. Yeah. The perception is, uh, it's an inadequate gospel that tries to reinflate. By the way, I see that to this day. We've talked about it. We won't beat a, it's not a dead horse, but I hope one day it's dying. Is uh, Kristen Winans written a really great book, Meditations on a, it's a Poet. It's come back to the faith. But he talks about when, you know, there's just, when the gospel is inadequate and it's not, doesn't have mystery, it's kind of hollowed out or deflated. You tend to do these externalities, like pump up the passion. And so we don't hear much about awakenings anymore. In fact, that's the last awakening in American history, uh, 1861. Think about that. Let's um, say 1861. That's 160 years ago. What happened? Well, first of all, I think you're seeing the inefficacy of a two, three hundred year old gospel, actually beginning 500 years ago, you see the inefficacy. It's got some holes in it. And so, reinflating them, tireless losing air, gives you, might, might give you a short burst. I, I only had a motorcycle for a brief period of insanity in my life. And, uh, and you can pump some air and maybe get some, get some distance. But, uh, First of all, the, the average Christian would say they're praying for a third great awakening. I find it fascinating. And we urge listeners to read this book that Charles Murray wrote, I think a worthwhile read coming apart white America, 1960 to 2010. It is a statistical tour de force of what has happened in white America from 1960 to 2010. Almost two white Americas. And he said, I'm just setting aside the other races because they have specific problems to it. But here's what he noted. So you have a white America that is essentially the family is intact. It tends to live in super zip codes. It tends to be, um, religious nuns, he doesn't use that language, but faith has been there, done that. Then you have this vast part of the country that uh, we, uh, this kind of talked about a bit in um, Vance's excellent book, Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, populist, uh, didn't necessarily go to the best schools, hardworking, um, but uh, not influential. And even he would allude to, they feel a bit of like uh, the system is rigged. Now think about this, 2010. This is six years before the rise of a, pre of a candidate who became president who fed 
on this this uh, sense of rage that the system has screwed me in white America. Set all that aside. So here's a man living just outside of Washington, D.C., who is an agnostic, Charles Murray. And the book has two worthwhile parts, particularly for Christians. First of all, he goes through this great experiment, America's great experiment, its founding. And it is, it's spot on. And again, the average um, Christian wouldn't even know what the great experiment is. Could you describe it, Pat? We're putting Pat on the spot here, listeners. Isn't this fun? <laughs> uh, before uh, conversations with you, no. I had, I had no idea America was even known as the great experiment. Yeah. And so it's depicted often as a circle which has uh, liberty, which sustains religion, and religion then sustains virtue, and virtue sustains liberty. So it's this never-ending circle. Liberty, virtue, religion. Liberty, virtue, religion. His point is, he said he's hoping for, get this, a fourth great awakening. He understands there's been three. So first of all, for my friends who are believers who are praying for a third awakening, we've already had it. Didn't last very long, and it created professional cynics. In fact, it created this. I have a friend who once said, you know, I like to start little fires and get them going. And I'm, I mean, the first image that came to mind was the burned over district. Familiar with that phrase? I am not. So the first Great Awakening created the first professional class of skeptics. That would be Franklin and the rest. And that's the 1700s. The 1800s created, amongst other things, uh, with the Second Great Awakening, what is called in New York State, that so many evangelists came through, uh, starting little fires for the gospel and, and what have you, and firing people up. It became what was called the Burned Over District. Hmm. That's fascinating because what then came out of the ashes. Out of the ashes came what is called in American history the Utopian Era. Utopia is Greek, meaning no place. Utopia doesn't exist. Right, right. I, I didn't know that's what it meant in the Greek. That's funny. Yeah. Hmm. Just like Windex means, no, it's the old. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the utopia. So, uh, for example, a little uh, fairly uneducated man named Joseph Smith comes out of this region. What you have in the utopian era is, oh, here's what we missed. If we just get this, the tire will be reinflated. Hmm. So he finds, claims to find, buried in the dirt in New York State. A new book. Yeah, these plates. Golden plates. Becomes Book of Mormon. Oh, we have Mary Baker Eddy. She claims, we have not honored the Sabbath, so out of this comes Christian science. We have Jehovah's Witnesses. All of these aberrations of Christianity because the air went out of this tire so rapidly. But that's not the, that's sort of those who are religiously infected. That's not what comes out of those who are disinclined to religion, especially after the third one. So get this. 
So first of all, the coming apart is worthwhile just to understand how America's influentials have collated into roughly 800 what are called super zip codes in America. There's four or 5,000 zip codes. And, and we used to be more intermingled, all the classes, and that's less the case anymore. So if you live in Montgomery County, you're living in one of the top 10 affluent, influential type county, Montgomery, Maryland, Montgomery County, Maryland, in the United States. You're going to meet a whole lot of people who think the way you think. Yeah, and then he, he talks about super zips being uh, all around that county, zip codes around that county. Oh, yeah, also yeah. have a high level, and so you're, you're very disconnected. <clears throat> That's right. Insulated, uh, reinforcing your beliefs, so on and so forth. Now, um, so that's, it's valuable for that. But here's the uh, thing I find fascinating. So he's hoping for a fourth awakening. But, so imagine the great experiment again. Religion is what uh, sustains virtue. Virtue is what sustains liberty. Liberty is what sustains religion. And that is, religion cannot be coerced. It must be freely chosen. Murray says, in effect, Religion is no longer in the game in America. It must be replaced by a better understanding of human nature, neuroscience. So the fourth great awakening he's hoping for is findings from neuroscience more fully explain human nature, which will create virtue. Virtue sustains liberty. Liberty will sustain the fair and impartial study of neuroscience. Neuroscience, a better understanding of human nature, will sustain liberty. Religion is no longer in the game. Which, interestingly, I mean, that itself is a, is a pretty enlightened approach, is it not? Sure. I mean, further understand this thing, then that will help us, that will enlighten us on how to sustain virtue, et cetera. Yes and no. Actually, no. Um, what he's referring to is the same research uh, that we've talked about, say, with uh, McGill Christ. Mm. Or um, um, what's written, uh, uh, the name escapes me, but he wrote Straw Dogs. Uh, he's at London School of Economics. But uh, that's a really good question, Pat. So let's clarify. It would come under the assumption of uh, quickly, you know, the brain processes 14 million bits of information every second. It puts them into 100, 200 super bundles. You can be cognizant of five to nine. So 5% of your behaviors you're conscious of, 95% are your unconscious, they're culturally conditioned. The Enlightenment say, no, you're conscious of all your the vast majority of your thoughts. So he's not, this is not enlightenment. Hmm. The reason he likes neuroscience is that we are, we are uh, functionally almost entirely non-conscious of the ways we act. We're culturally conditioned. So neuroscience better understands that. So neuroscience will be more reliant than religion to understand the power of cultures, cultural influentials, and producing what I guess you probably would call virtuous cultures. Mm. Sure. Now, that has a lot of appeal. Yeah. But we're back to the age-old problem. 
not age old, 19th century problem, which is again after these three awakenings, you have a fairly well-known guy today named Friedrich Nietzsche, who rightfully notes, well, if God's not in the equation anymore, then there's no such thing as virtue. And what we're left with is values. And your values end at the tip of your finger. My values begin at the tip of mine. You touch my values, you can go to hell. So it was Nietzsche who said, the problem with that is the bloodiest century, uh, the 20th century will be the bloodiest century ever. Because it will no longer be right makes might, I'm quoting Lincoln, but might makes right, mm. which I'm quoting now, John Wilkes Booth. We just we just came a long way, and in actually, I'm more now, man. I haven't heard from you before, so this is all great. <laughs> so we've run a long way. So We're going to break here with Gatorade, yeah. <laughs> Pass me that big Gatorade. Just, just to recap. <laughs> just to recap. So, so how how we got to where we are? We we started with woke. You, you talked about some of the similarities to awakenings, and the fact that we've already had three awakenings, and for each, uh, as they they came along, each one failed to uh, to fix the tire. So they mm-hmm. they all eventually uh, went flat, so to speak, including leading up to the. Civil War, which, uh, I mean, the bloodshed was enormous, and you see the, the most blatant kind of uh, shortcoming of, of this faith. The perception is, is very clear there. Uh, how did both sides pray to the same God and still result in such catastrophic death and destruction? Um, and so now, here we are. There's Charles Murray, who's advocating for a fourth, which is essentially replacing religion with uh, neuroscience and some of the research with neuroscience and in an attempt to create virtuous cultures. Is that, does that sound about right? Yeah. Okay. Yes. And okay. He, by the way, he doesn't, doesn't seem to have an ax to grind against religion. Uh, so here's this point late in the book. I'm practically quoting it. The great hope is in, uh, he calls, findings from neural and genetic research. Quote, those age-old traditions that align with this research will be validated. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Those age-old traditions. I would suggest the age-old pre-enlightenment tradition of the gospel in which even as William Wilberforce wrote, we are in effect, we should be self-suspicious because we are in effect strangers to ourselves We are not these fully conscious, cognizant, mind-slash-body 
dichotomy types that can think our way out of problems. By the way, listeners, a shameless plug for this this past Monday's column. I mean, that's I just quoted Jamie Smith, philosopher, Calvin College, who says, I've been trying to think, I've been trying to help people think our way out of problems we didn't think our way into. Kudos, Jamie. But uh, the problem with this is the same shortcoming, the air I hear already leaking from woke. Is the intention right? Sure. Uh, yes. And is it addressing systemic problems? Of course. But just as the awakenings, we're trying to reinflate a tire with some holes in it. Woke is trying to reinflate shortcomings, but it's got holes in it. You first fix the flat. And here's what I mean. So I'm fine with neuroscience in this regard. If you do discover how the brain works, you are back in the, the territory of Ian McGilchrist and others in a book that hardly any Christian will read, but say lovey, it is what it is. Where McGilchrist says, why do we have two hemispheres? That's you, a really good. Uh, you're referring to the master and his emissary there? Yeah, the master and his emissary. Why? Uh, so now if you're a Christian, that's a good question even for a Christian. Why? I mean, wouldn't it be far more efficient and practical? We always make fun of practical people. <laughs> wouldn't it be practical? One brain, one that even wouldn't be called hemisphere, just one sphere, period. Process the whole thing, get the thing in and out and save time and energy. What the heck is going on with these two hemispheres? And he writes almost like a Christian mystic that the right hemisphere is always attenuated to the other and he capitalizes other and he says there must be there must exist the other capitalized do you know one of the synonyms for holy is other really yes god is holy being holy he is other than hmm. anything else holiness is you're just other than anything else other but in the gospel of god marrying us he has to marry doesn't have to no yeah actually by nature by his very nature since god can't be created he has to create other persons because God is three persons sharing one nature he has to create other persons who are like him in nature but not God other so you have father son spirit 
three persons, but one nature, and you have other, always trying to, made in the image of God, so that other is always pinging the other, always looking for the other. Right hemisphere is always looking for the left. The left isn't. Now don't take this too far, except the right hemisphere is always looking for the other hemisphere. Fascinating. McGilchrist asks, why? And he comes up to this conclusion, can't be evolution. He has a second um, alternative. I can't remember what it was. Uh, he writes that off too. And he says, there must be the other. Forget this, Pat. It's a little dense language, but it's worth it. This will wake up your brain in the morning. Oh boy. There must be a reverberative being. Reverberative. That's a big old word. What does essentially that mean? I knew you were going <clears> to <throat> ask that. <laughs> oh, yeah, Calvin, I knew he was going to ask that. Uh, I mean, ver uh, assuming that comes from reverberations. Uh, yeah, there you go, reverberations. Right? So, yeah. There you go. And that <clears throat> is, in effect, that is a suitable image for the triune God. Hmm. Of course, they're always reverberating with one another. Of course course love as often was said by the mystics is a verb god is love he is reverberative so you might say <clears throat> as we come to the close here and cough uh, <laughs> what do we do about all this okay here's what we do let's let's get practical here mike let's get practical here <laughs> let's land the plane what does the word religion mean? Because what's his name? Murray's taken it out of the equation. The founders put it in the equation. What does religion, the word mean? Latin. It's to, a Latin word. To rebind. There you go. Ligio, ligament. Ligaments bind tissue and bone. Re. That's it. To rebind. Religion has always been to return us, to rebind us. To what we ought to be. If you're gonna, if you have a faith tradition that's constantly, that's always leaking air, first fix the flat. That means return, rebind the gospel to what it ought to be. That's why you see throughout the Old Testament and the New return. If you read the lectionary readings during the Lenten season, you read through the prophet Jeremiah. Return to me, you adulterous spouse, my bride. I am your creator, Isaiah. Return to me. Return to me. The founders in putting together the great experiment understood the role of religion is to return us, not a compulsory religion, not a state religion, but a freely chosen religion, rightly understood, returns us to rightly who we are as human beings and why we exist. 
I don't think we need an awakening. I think we need a returning to pre-enlightenment tradition. We first must fix the flat. Because if you fix the flat and return, then you don't have to keep trying to reinflate it as we have done for the last several hundred years with woeful results. So Pat, in the same way, we don't have a crystal ball, but if you listen carefully, you can already hear the air escaping from woke. For those who are perceptive, and I have some friends in town that I see it in their eyes, they begin to roll the eyes, they begin to go, oh, yet another. It's called, they're already hearing the air escape for all its good intentions and the things that it, need, that it, that it seeks to address that should be addressed. It is an adequate and inadequate understanding of human nature just like the gospel that we've been sharing for the last couple hundred years is an inadequate view of human nature. So for all its promise, it does not deliver the promised results. And you create instead, we've created professional religious nuns. My best guess is this will one day produce professional woke nuns who will look back and go, oh, that was... That was utopia. <laughs>